But first, we start with the political battles here at home in Canada. And I'll tell you what, this is going to be the political fight of our lives here, I believe, over the next few years. It is Justin Trudeau versus Pierre Polyev. Polyev, of course, the new Conservative Party leader elected on the weekend. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing he will run again in the next election against Polyev. These two are on a collision course here. What do you think? We're going to see the battle for the ages between these two? I think so. They're already going at it here. Yesterday, Trudeau calling out Polyev, accusing him of irresponsible leadership. Polyev saying Trudeau leading Canada in the wrong direction. Have a listen to Polyev here in his first speech to the Conservative caucus. This is yesterday. I'm issuing a challenge to Justin Trudeau today. If you really understand the suffering of Canadians, Mr. Prime Minister, if you understand that people can't gas their cars, feed their families, or afford homes for themselves, if you really care, commit today that there will be no new tax increases on workers and on seniors. None. Okay, that was uh, uh, Pierre Polyev, the new Conservative leader, speaking yesterday. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau going after Polyev here. Have a listen to Trudeau's shots at Polyev. Buzzwords, dog whistles, and careless attacks don't add up to a plan for Canadians. Telling people they can opt out of inflation by investing their savings in volatile cryptocurrencies is not responsible leadership. Okay, Justin Trudeau, yesterday, here we go now with the uh, the fight between these two. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP for Surrey Centre. Randeep, thank you for coming on today. Uh, thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Okay, we're also hoping to have Carrie Lynn Finley on, uh, Conservative MP. We're trying to track her down. Uh, hopefully we'll get her on here shortly. Randeep, let me ask you your thoughts on Pierre Polyev as the new Conservative leader. Well, first of all, Renee, I want to congratulate him on becoming the leader of His Majesty's official opposition. And uh, as, as a leader of the official opposition, we're going to have to work with him. And, and I think Canadians expect governments to work together uh, to solve problems for Canadians and uh, hoping uh, it'll be positive, uh, not expecting uh, uh, it potentially to be that, but the goal and objective must be to be positive and work with your counterparts uh, to deliver for Canadians, and I think that's what we're going to be focused on. Uh, but it's a, it's going to be a big contrast, I think, uh, a contrast for Canadians on what type of government they want and what type of leader. I think he's pretty divisive. I think he's uh, great on words and slogans and hashtags, but uh, uh, very short on substance on how he's going to do things. I mean, firing the Bank of Canada uh, governor isn't going to solve inflation. It isn't going to solve the war in Ukraine, uh, the invasion by Russia or supply chain issues in China. Uh, but uh, he finds those as quick whip answers. Uh, and I don't think that's what Canadians are expecting their government to do. They want uh, solid good governance. They want uh, people to be able to uh, come up with ideas to help support families, uh, uh, young families that are uh, facing uh, challenging times. And I don't think words are going to be uh, what, what heals them. I think uh, well, they're going to need... Uh, I, I noticed that the, the tone and focus seems to be changing somewhat with Polyev as he transitions to the conservative leader rather than as a conservative candidate for leadership. And I noted that 
you know, we don't seem to be hearing the cryptocurrency stuff. I didn't hear him talk about firing the governor of the Bank of Canada in his speech to the Conservative caucus. I didn't hear him say anything about boycotting the World Economic Forum. He seems to be pivoting now to the issues, I think, that are of chief concern to Canadians, which is their standard of living, their cost of living, uh, housing, the affordability crisis we see here in our own city. Is that, that's where I think that Trudeau was vulnerable. But your thoughts? Well, look, uh, he, he advised on cryptocurrency and thought that was a way out of inflation. And I know personally people who lost their life savings, a little uh, small pizza shop owner in my riding, listened to people like him and invested his entire savings and it dwindled down to a quarter of what he had before. Uh, and so that was irresponsible. He should know better. He was running to be leader, uh, running to be uh, prime minister and and your words uh, are being heard and listened to and and you 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 need to to be better at that if he's talking about housing affordability he hasn't really given a plan he doesn't want government to be in any place he wants a reduction in government it's uh, uh how will he assist in in creating hundreds of thousands of new homes that canadians need he has really put no plan in place or proposed anything in terms of housing affordability he was well, in government before never did a national housing strategy never looked at it the first national housing strategy was done by our government in 2016-2017. So uh, we've been, we put money where our mouth is. We've made a plan. We've listened to people. And 6,000 homes just got announced in Vancouver. Uh, affordable rental housing that's going to be constructed on Indigenous land in the city of Vancouver. It's going to need much-needed housing to those that work and live there. That's proper governance. That's putting money in action uh, where it's needed. Well, hang on. He did say he did address housing in his speech yesterday to the Conservative caucus, saying one of the things he will do is put pressure on municipalities to cut red tape and to start building more housing in cities across Canada by tying it to federal infrastructure money. So that if you want to qualify for federal bucks, you better be approving housing in your cities as a way to jumpstart housing starts in the country. Your thoughts. That's the exact said. He's just copying our plan. We've already said uh, we had a $4 billion housing accelerator fund, which tells exactly that. The cities that will cut red tape, cut NIMBYism, uh, accelerate housing growth, uh, they will be able to tap into that fund. It's a carrot uh, uh, versus a stick. And directly, he can say whatever he wants. He can't tell municipalities what to do. We've tied that as well into infrastructure. Infrastructure will roll with those municipalities that develop growth strategies uh, around transit corridors. Uh, they will get that, that funding. They will get additional funding to help hire more plan checkers, development uh, uh, planners, uh, and, and others of the like in City Hall right. for those that actually work hard. As we continue talking about the new Conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, Randip Sarai, Liberal MP, is my guest. We're joined by Carrie Lynn Finley now, Conservative MP, South Surrey, White Rock. Carrie Lynn, thank you for coming on today. Yes, hi. Thanks, Mike. Okay, can you tell me, give me your pitch here for Polyev and why you think he would be good for Canada? <laughs> well, uh, I've just been named to the leadership team, so uh, that's... Um going to be very interesting, a dynamic, united team moving forward. Pierre's got very clear messaging, and his messaging is about smaller government, bigger citizens, uh, going from hurt to hope. And there's a lot of people hurting right now, and they're not being listened to by this Trudeau government. And uh, like big tax hikes that are on their way, uh, certainly in the new year. So we want 
them to listen. We want them to listen to Canadians, and we're listening to Canadians and saying what you need is a caring government, compassionate government that cares about you, cares about how you can afford to live in Canada, how you can get ahead, and that your hard work should be rewarded. And I think that's a very strong message that's resonating with Canadians. Randip Sarai, what do you say to that? Well, first, I want to congratulate my colleague from Surrey on becoming the whip uh, in the Conservative Party. So uh, congratulations, Terry. But uh, I also want to say, uh, how are you? I I also want to say that, you know, uh, uh, it's going to take more than just uh, a word. Uh, Small governance uh, didn't work before. Uh, uh, If you want uh, to fight climate climate change and the effects of it, look at it just now. Uh, What we've uh, British Columbia seen uh, uh, in the last two years, extreme heat, extreme cold, uh, floods. Uh, you have to fight carbon, and 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 carbon policy uh, has been one of the best and most effective ways. And I think it's false to scare people and tell them there's new taxes coming in the way when there are no new taxes uh, being affected on them. In fact, there's actually more money being proposed to give back to them, uh, to support them, just as the Canada Child Benefit, which is given which is tax-free to low-income uh, families and medium-income families on a income threshold, where it was taxed by the Conservatives before and given to millionaires. So, uh, you know, the approach is very different, uh, and I think people need to understand that. Kerry Lynn Finley, he says, there's no, he says there's no tax hikes coming. That's not true. Uh, the carbon tax is tripling, and there, there's going to be more money taken out of everyone's pocket for CPP and other source deductions at a time when inflation is at a 40-year high, and it's hurting people. People are having trouble buying groceries. Uh, we've got a record number of Canadians saying that they're skipping a meal each day to make ends meet. This is unacceptable in a nation like Canada. And of course, the environment is important. We agree. But we also believe in results, getting behind Canadian ingenuity where it comes to green energy and clean energy and understanding that we do have a lot of answers on the environment and they're not all wrapped up in carbon taxes. People, I mean, the Liberals love to make big pronouncements but no, don't follow through. Look at all the billions of trees they were going to plant. Where are they? <laughs> they they say these things, and then they don't do it. Our emissions have actually been going up. So, you know, if the answer is just taxing people more, uh, we would have seen bigger results. That's not the answer. And on things like child tax credits, we brought those in before, and we uh, brought in income splitting for seniors. You know, we we always want to help regular okay. Canadians and seniors. Let's squeeze in a call here on the open line while we can. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Go ahead. Hey, Randy. You seem like a really nice guy. So uh, you know, I, I, and and and, but your government is so completely out of touch. Your prime minister. I have a family same size as his. He spends twelve thousand a month on groceries. You tell me, Randy, but again, you're a super nice guy, how that man can relate to what I'm going through. I, can't, I don't spend 12000 in, in nine months. So you just, you just tell me about that. Rand- Randy, it's all right. You- Randy, it's all right. Let me, let's let him answer. Right. Go ahead. Randy. Look, I, I haven't looked at the, 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 the prime minister's grocery budget or his budget, and I'm sure it's a little more complicated than that with all the staff and other uh, 
uh, other apparatus. But I can tell you, I don't spend that. And I think I can also assure you that the prime minister is very, very concerned. We're at a caucus retreat right now where the main uh, concentration is on affordability and how to make Canadians' lives better and to make sure that uh, your grocery bills go down, how we can improve supply chain issues so that the cost of delivery of those groceries and goods are faster, how we can alleviate a lot of the labor shortage problems we're having, which is causing prices to go up, and how to alleviate some of the supply chains uh, globally to bring some of the resources here and also create a domestic market uh, uh, to create some of the goods that we import uh, right here at home. So our concentration is uh, to lower the cost okay. and do it uh, quickly. Carrie Lynn, well, I, Carrie I, Lynn I, Finley, go ahead. Go ahead, Carrie Lynn. A government that's truly committed to listening to Canadians and helping Canadians doesn't have a caucus retreat in the West Coast, fly everyone out there for that, and then fly everyone right across the country for another caucus retreat in another location. I mean, uh, the caller's point on how the Prime Minister and his cabinet look at the dollars that are sent to them by the taxpayers, he's absolutely right. It's, you know, there seems to be no end or limit to the spending that this Prime Minister is prepared to do, personally, as well as from a government perspective. Uh, you know, as soon as Pierre Polyev became our leader, there's headlines that they're thinking of doing something about inflation. And yet, as late as when we recessed in June, they told us it was a global phenomenon, totally out of their hands, nothing they could okay. do about it. But it's not true. Okay, Randy Sarai, we've got 30 seconds left. I'll give you the last word. Go ahead. Uh, well, look, I think it's going to be a very interesting time. I think Canadians are going to have to look hard and see uh, what are what to expect from a government, and what type of leadership to expect. I think, uh, do you want somebody that's unifying Canadians? Do you want somebody who's helping uh, uh, Canadians out and during a difficult time, who's growing the, the, the GDP and the economic pie for Canadians and, and also fighting climate change at the same okay. time? I think that's the type of leadership we knew, and, and that contrast will be visible. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the incredible counteroffensive underway as Ukraine recovers territory that had earlier been captured by Russia in the invasion and the war. This is an amazing counterstrike here by Ukrainian forces. I've got John Spencer standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report now, the latest here from ABC News. A stunning breakthrough for Ukraine. It's troops on the attack in this dramatic new video. Surging forward, claiming to ambush a Russian vehicle. Ukraine's lightning advance in the east, routing Russian forces, which retreated in a hurry. Tonight, a senior US defense official saying Russia has largely ceded their gains to the Ukrainians near Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, with many Russian soldiers crossing back into Russia, in the process abandoning vast amounts of weaponry and entire stocks of ammunition. All right, let's discuss this uh, stunning turn of events here in the war with my guest, John Spencer. John is an urban warfare expert. He's the chair of urban warfare studies at the Madison Policy Forum. He's a a retired U.S. Army major, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. John, thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me back. You you bet. It's our pleasure here. I'm fascinated by what's going on on the ground. How did the Ukrainian forces manage to pull this off? 
Uh, so that's that's an interesting question. Um, they started a major offensive in the south of Ukraine. It wasn't a feint or a, a uh, you know as a not a real attack. They actually attacked the city of Harrison in the south of Ukraine. But that forced the Russians to have to make a decision on whether to respond to that attack, and they did. And they maneuvered a big force towards the south of Ukraine to respond to that city that was about to be lost. And that created an opening for the Ukrainians who actually planned a, their main effort to be in the east, where we're talking about, around the city of Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in Ukraine. Right. <laughs> and what they discovered was, I think, even surprised them of how weak the Russians had left their entire line. I'm talking about thousands of square miles of line. And they left really no forces of, of value there. And the forces that were left didn't fight. So now the you, we really can't treat, keep track of the Ukrainian advance because it's going so fast because the Russians aren't aren't even trying to fight a withdrawal. They're, they're literally collapsing and running away. Right. And some of the, Rus- the, the Russians' official pronouncements from from Russia is saying that there are some retreats underway by Russian forces, but trying to make it sound like this was a planned uh, move by Russian forces. I, certainly the TV pictures don't attest to this looking like any kind of planned movement by by Russia. This looks like Ukrainians just, just kicking butt over there. It's just in, incredible. Like, How significant are these gains, these territorial advances by Ukraine? How big are they? How significant is it? I mean, I think they're, it's a turning point in the war. So just like if you remember back to April when Russian, all Russians in Ukraine withdrew um, from the major cities, especially the capital city of Kiev, they, they made this statement that, oh, that, that was never our plan. We're just – this is always about the Donbass. So they regrouped and, and made a strong push in April in the Donbass and claimed a lot of land. Well, the Ukrainians over the last couple of days have seized back more land than Russia has – since the last few months, since April, since they they made their one push, um, it is huge, and it's not just about like the square miles or kilometers. It's the cities in which they're grabbing are key to Russian capabilities in this entire eastern part of of the Ukraine. I think this is a great sign of the Russian defeat. Wow! Speaking to retired U.S. Army Major John Spencer about the. Ukrainian counterstrike on the ground in Ukraine. John, you, you say that this is a, a turning point. Can Ukraine win this war now? Is, is, that your, is that your feeling that Ukraine will win now? Absolutely. I've had that feeling since, you know, since early on. And I actually went there since we last talked. I went there in June to study the Battle of Kiev and how this very small force defeated on April 2nd most powerful military in the world. And I looked into their eyes and, and their military. I knew they would never stop fighting. So you, absolutely, they can and will win this war with the support of the West. And that's really key. Yeah. These weapons that have been flowing in over the last few months, the rockets, the radars, the ammo, has been key to um, U- Ukraine ability to have this this moment where they're defeating Russians in the offense, which is hasn't happened before in this war. It's because of that Western supply, because they have an entire people willing to fight, but they have to have the, the arms. This this war won't last for years. Russia will be defeated in months. 
Wow. Okay, that's very interesting analysis. What about Russia's response here now? What do you anticipate seeing from Vladimir Putin? Does he double down here and continue fighting? Is there any chance that Russia sues for peace? I think it's very interesting to see a debate breaking out, at least in, in some Russian media, and some Russian politicians actually speaking up and saying, hang on a sec, maybe it's time to look for a way out of this. Your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I don't think there's going to be a sue for peace. Ukraine has made it very very adamant and because they, they're at a you know a position of strength that they won't stop until all sovereign ukraine land is back in their hands and that includes crimea which was taken in 2014 and and all the all the dumbass um so the belief is that there has to be some type of a negotiation with putin putin yeah. doesn't have to save face he could actually end this war today and it would have little impact on his his ability to control power in russia this is really his it's on him, but we are seeing a fracturing of his inner circles and kind of the dissent against this operation. But the way the Ukraine wins is to defeat the Russian military in Ukraine. While all the other pressures of national power, the sanctions are working, the information war is working, and even hardcore Russians are seeing that there's not a path to victory in Ukraine and there's only a path to continued death of the military. You know, where does this end? It, absolutely, it, it ends with a political settlement. But Ukraine has made it very clear that, that political settlement is Russia withdrawing from all Ukraine, returning, you know, hundreds and hundreds of children and babies they've, they've kidnapped. I mean, th there, there's some terms that Ukraine wants to end this. Is there any chance that Putin doubles down here and moves into some sort of total war mobilization effort? There's been talk about some sort of a national uh, draft for the war in Ukraine. Uh, some Russian politicians are, are at least raising that possibility. Is that an option right now for Putin to double down and uh, with a mass mobilization and continue the and continue the war? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question that I've, I, people have been struggling with since day one. Um, I personally think that Russian can't mobilize his nation for a war that even he understands is not a threat to their national survival. It's not a threat to Russia that Ukraine is a free country, um, and everybody knows that. And I think actually one of the reasons that he won't call for a, a national call-up of service is because he doesn't want to be embarrassed by the Russian citizens who don't show up for that. Right. So you, you can force people like the conscripts that are currently being forced into this war. But that would be a, even a more strategic embarrassment to Putin if his if he calls for that mobilization and it doesn't happen. But I personally think that it's just not a possibility for him. Will he double down? So you, to answer your question, and, and I think you asked it before. I mean, we've already seen that in response to this, there, he Russia is continuing their missile terrorism. Right. They're bombing cities at will, you knocking out power and all of that. And there is still a sizable Russian military force that they will have to make a decision on where they want to surge those Russian forces. So he's not going to give up. Doubling down, as in with the force he has in Ukraine, absolutely. He will allow tens of thousands more Russians to die. And they've already lost, you know, some estimates of already 80,000. And it's really wow. hard to hide that from mothers in Russia and families in Russia that their sons and daughters or sons mostly are gone. John, thank you very much for your time and your analysis today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you.
All right, let's keep talking about the war in Ukraine now and the stunning counteroffensive by Ukrainian forces. You just heard the perspective of John Spencer, the retired U.S. Army major there, believes this is a key turning point in the conflict. He thinks that Ukraine is now on the path to win this war. I've got Melinda Herring standing by to discuss. She was recently in Kiev. Really looking forward to our conversation. First, let's have a listen to this report from AB News. Uh, Tom Sophie Burridge is the reporter here on the Ukrainian advances. Have a listen to this. Ukrainian flags flying again over key strategic cities. Emotional scenes. Ukrainian troops greeted as liberators in videos circulating online. This man saying the Russians were here in the morning, then suddenly started shouting and ran away. And with the Russians gone, bodies are being dug up. Ukrainian officials saying there are 1,000 new war crimes investigations now underway in just one newly liberated city. Tonight, even the Kremlin acknowledging its retreat and retaliating. Russian missiles destroying a power station in Kharkiv, knocking out power to thousands. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Melinda Herring. Melinda is the deputy director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council. And I'm very pleased to welcome Melinda back to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, Mike, great to be with you. And, and hello to everyone in Vancouver. Yeah, and, and welcome home. I know you were recently on the ground in Kyiv, in the country, in Ukraine. What was that trip like for you? And uh, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing on the ground there now? So, so a couple of words. If I have to describe Kyiv, it's surreal. I've lived there on and off since 2007, and it's a very bustling city. And it's hard to tell that there's a war if you just look around in Kiev. There are hedgehogs. They're like cross-shaped uh, devices that, that prevent tanks from moving around. And there are some checkpoints. But life has returned to normal. Uh, but the estimation is that 80% of people are back. If you look at, at heating bills and you look at lights in apartment buildings, I drove around Mike uh, in southern Kiev uh, at night, and these big old Soviet apartment buildings are, are really lit up. Uh, the restaurants have reopened. There is a curfew. You have to be in by 11 p.m. Uh, but people are uh, back and out and about. Now, the counteroffensive in the east and the north is stunning. And yeah. I was there during a, a big international conference, and the mood became jubilant at, at this conference. But it's still going to be hard going. I think your general is right that this is a big inflection point. But the Ukrainians still have to hold this territory that they've captured. So especially in the south, it's going to be very, very hard uh, to make more progress. But uh, I, the momentum is, is definitely uh, behind the Ukrainians at this point. Yeah, I remember in the very early days of this conflict, Melinda, when you were a guest here on the show. And I recall you saying, do not underestimate the capacity of the Ukrainians to resist this invasion and to fight back. And now we're seeing this amazing counteroffensive on the ground here. How big of a, a moment is this? Do you think this is a critical turning point in the war? Absolutely. So if you're going to divide it, the war into neat little distinct points, phase one was Kiev. Ukraine came out on top decisively. Phase two was the war in the Donbass, which is in eastern Ukraine. And the, the Ukrainians didn't do as well because it was an artillery war and the Russians had a lot more uh, artillery. Uh, but it, it, it is devolved into a stalemate. Now, phase three is going to be this counteroffensive and the Russians are on the run. Uh, and like we said before, the Ukrainians are making extraordinary progress. And I think it's because 
the Russians don't want to fight. They don't understand what they're doing there. They're very tired. They have low morale. They have terrible leadership, and they have really big problems with their supply lines. And if you say, okay, fine, Russia has a lot more people than Ukraine, that's true. But if you dig in and talk to military analysts, they don't have that many more capable military forces that they can easily send in. What about the possibility, this has been raised even within Russia among politicians there, about the possibility of Putin doubling down, maybe instituting some sort of a national draft or mobilization, and really going sort of total war and calling up uh, new soldiers and, and even increasing the aggression there. Is that even remotely possible at this point, do you think? Look, anything is possible. Putin has a number of bad options. He's painted himself into a corner. Mobilization is, of course, one of the options. I don't think he's going down that road, Mike. If he does that, he's going to unleash forces in society that he can't control. And Putin always wants to be in control. The best option for him is to press for negotiations and get the Europeans to start pressing for for negotiations because it will give him time, his forces time to regroup and and try to get a a deal at the negotiating table. It's not good for Ukraine. Ukraine's not going to do it. We just have a minute left here, Melinda. In the next couple of days, is there any fear that uh, Russian forces unleash some sort of scorched earth policy? I mean, we heard in that NBC report about how Russian rockets had hit a, uh, a power plant, I guess just to cut off power to people in the, in the city that's in, there, where the fighting had been going on. Um, what do you expect from Ru- Russia in the, in the immediate future here? So that's one of the possibilities Putin has, is to keep by hitting civil infrastructure like they did in Kharkiv. And the yeah. nationalist forces in Russia want him to do that. They want him to step up the game, to use more military strikes, and really put the pressure. But again, this could, this could uh, come back to Biden, because we see very strong Ukrainian resolve. And Zelensky just gave this very stirring speech, and he, he says, we are not afraid of you. We will build, uh, uh, we are not afraid of you, turn off our gas, turn off our heat. It doesn't matter. We're not going to give in. Melinda, it's always awesome to have you on here with your analysis and your expertise. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Uh, All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the latest random attack on the streets of Vancouver. This time it's a 22-year-old man, a refugee from Afghanistan, working in Vancouver as a DoorDash driver, locking up his bike in Chinatown while making a food delivery. And then he's viciously attacked, stabbed in the neck and the chest. And he has survived. And there has been an arrest in this case. This is police saying this is another unprovoked, random stranger attack in our city. It's an average of four of these happening a day in Vancouver. I got former Vancouver Police Department Inspector Rob Rothwell standing by. First, let's have a listen to this report from I Global News. Re- blood coming out of his neck, like uh, like gushing out, like like a, like a faucet. Uh, and I think he got stabbed in the neck and the arm. He ha- had a knife, and he was trying to to reach the face and the neck. And the Sunday night assault on Gore Avenue, unprovoked, according to Vancouver Police. The victim, a food delivery driver, locking up his bicycle at around 6 p.m. when he is stabbed repeatedly. But he was just here, just gushing here, and then like he went over there. 
Bystanders immediately call 911 and rush to stop the bleeding. Their quick action possibly saves the 22-year-old victim's life. Like one dude like had a cloth, like I told you earlier, closing the neck. Um, but there was, there was a lot of blood. Police say he is a refugee, having just arrived in Canada from Afghanistan back in May. Young man, trying to make a go of it in the world. At work, he's locking up his bike to a, a street pole, um, doing deliveries for Skip the Dishes when he's uh, approached by somebody that he doesn't know um, and attacked for uh, what appears to be completely random and un- unprovoked reasons. Okay, and that's a great report there by Global News reporter Krista Dow, including those witness uh, statements there from people who saw this go down. And some of the people who did witness this saying, this is something that you never forget. Like, you see someone attack like this, I mean, that is just stuck in your mind like for the rest of your lives. I find these random attacks so disturbing, especially this one. I mean, a guy, like six o'clock, guys is locking up his bike. He's attacked from behind. Random assault. Lucky to be alive. Let's check in with Rob Rothwell now, former VPD inspector, He's, uh, thirty over 30 years of the Vancouver Police Department. Rob, thank you very much for coming on today. Hey, you're, you're welcome, Mike. Okay. Uh, when you hear about these assaults, I mean, this is like just becoming so commonplace. I mean, we just seem to hear about these every week. There's some other horrifying attack like this on the streets yeah. of the city. What goes through your mind when you hear this? Oh, uh, it, it's really alarming and uh, very frightening. But I think we also have to keep it in perspective. It's a very small cohort of, uh, you know, the sort of criminal population that uh, is committing these crimes. But nonetheless, uh, they are vicious and they're frightening, and uh, anybody could be uh, a victim of uh, these events. And uh, and even to call this thing an assault is incorrect because really it's an attempted murder. It is essentially a failed murder, and uh, so it's a random attempted murder. And uh, the the public have very high expectations of the police around this, and I know that the police uh, also are putting great effort into finding these individuals and holding them accountable. And sometimes that's where it falls down a bit, is holding them accountable and uh, and what to do with them after they're charged uh, and potentially convicted. Yeah, this man is lucky to be alive after being stabbed in the neck like that. And he's fortunate there were some good Samaritans there who helped him, uh, applied some first aid, maybe saved his life. And uh, he's recovering now. There is a charge, there is an arrest, there's a charge for aggravated assault is the charge here, I understand, in this case. Yeah, you know, I mean, in my view, uh, attempted murder seems more appropriate, but uh, it's a crown that makes that final determination about laying a charge. The important thing here is that the individual is off the streets uh, and away from the public and hopefully will be remanded in court until trial. And uh, and it's important that uh, we all follow up to find out what happens uh, during the course of the trial uh, and uh, hopefully a conviction and then what is imposed in the way of sentencing and potential treatment for the individual if this is mentally, uh, you know, mental, um, driven by a mental illness. Uh, So it is something to pay attention to. Speaking of Rob Rothwell, former inspector of the Vancouver Police Department, you mentioned, we, we heard in that report there from some of the witnesses there, and a lot of them are saying, like, this is just a nightmarish thing to witness. Like, just see someone attack, the blood gushing out of their, out of their throat. Like, that's, that's a picture you never get out of your mind. Like, I'm no, sure absolutely. that... Go uh, ahead. It's, it's, 
Well, it's completely horrifying. And uh, I mean, I have uh, so much sympathy for the uh, the victim here. And it is fortunate that people were there uh, in order to help them immediately. Um, but these things are horrible. And, uh, and sometimes they don't really get the reporting that they deserve. Uh, because, you know, these things happen day in and day out, uh, not to this degree of um, brutality, but um, the public should be aware that these events do occur and we should be holding our politicians and, uh, and other service workers to a very high standard in terms of trying to deal with this. You were a police officer for more than 30 years. You did a lot of work down in some of these troubled neighborhoods like the downtown east side. And I know you've seen a lot of this kind of stuff up close yourself as a police officer on the front lines. Does it seem to you, though, that it's getting worse or that these type of events are more frequent? Like when you were on the street as a police officer, how often would you like attend an event like this, like get a call like this, like a random attack, like a guy just stabbed for no reason on the street? You know, it would be quite a rare event uh, for something that uh, would be this vicious and this uh, unprovoked. Uh, usually there's a reason, you know, where two individuals have a conflict with each other and knives come out and uh, similar injuries may be sustained. But I think what is different here is the attack uh, unprovoked of innocent uh, citizens that are going about their business. That's unique, and that's something that seems to be emerging more, uh, you know, this year and, and last year. Yeah, why do you think this is happening? I mean, you touched briefly on the mental Ill, untreated mental illness we're seeing on the streets. I mean, we got mental illness, we've got drug addiction, we got homelessness. In many cases, it's all three. Well, yeah, it is. It is. It's the perfect trifecta, sadly. Um, I think that a lot of these individuals, and again, I don't want to blow it out of proportion here, but it's a small cohort of individuals that, uh, you know, uh, pose this level of risk to the public, but they need to be removed from the public. Uh, you know, at some point, really what, what the courts and what uh, we as a society need to do is say, we've got to protect the public more so. That's got to be the emphasis in terms of sentencing and dealing with these individuals rather than, you know, what may be in the best interest of the suspect or the accused person. So, we have to look more at things like uh, dangerous offender designations, holding people in long-term custody, uh, and rather than releasing them back out to the public. Because, you know, I have difficulty believing uh, in this most recent event that any level of psychotherapy or drug intervention is going to remove the criminal or the the um, violent element out of that individual's personality. And uh, so to me, I I really feel that person uh, needs to be removed uh, for the safety of the rest of the public. And uh, that may require reestablishing a secure treatment facility for uh, criminality, such as uh, what we had with Riverview. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the good news in this case is that the, the victim has survived here and is recovering which which I think is is, is good. Um, we also have the, an arrest and a charge here. How difficult is it to catch these suspects? Like one of the things, you know, I spoke yesterday to Howard Chow, the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department, and he said he told me that we're seeing a lot of these type of attacks, but we're we are having good success in catching suspects. Um, a lot of it is from uh, video uh, evidence that's recorded, and and it, but it, it's. It's dependent on people calling the police when they see something happen. Yeah, people have to call the police, and then they have to also be prepared to step up, and if they witnessed an event, uh, to provide that evidence to the police. 
Unfortunately, uh, you know, when the police are not on scene when the incident occurs, we have to rely on the evidence that's gathered. And a lot of that evidence comes from witnesses on site. Uh, but if they're reluctant to provide that evidence and go to court and provide it, uh, you know, it jeopardizes the case. Uh, and so there is an appeal to witnesses all the time uh, for their cooperation. And it's a difficult thing to do. Undoubtedly, uh, people feel vulnerable uh, stepping up and wanting to give evidence against uh, a violent, uh, you know, potential murderer. I totally understand that. Um, the police will definitely take steps to try and provide some level of protection to those witnesses. But, um, you know, shying away and failing to report really just perpetuates a problem. Okay, we keep talking about the rise of random stranger attacks on the streets of Vancouver. This latest one is absolutely brutal. 22-year-old man, a refugee new to Canada, working as a skip-the-dishes driver, attacked, stabbed on the streets of Chinatown. Lots of calls coming in. Let's have a quick listen to this report from Global News reporter Krista Dow with some of the witnesses who saw this. Have a listen to this. The violence comes on the heels of increased random stranger attacks in Vancouver. Lately, it's been terrifying. I don't know. I, I am now, now thinking the possibility to move on and, and find another place to, to live because this is not good. I don't think anybody should see what I saw last night. You can't see that. It's like it's unreal. It's obviously concerning. Um, we're making progress in terms of uh, cases like these where we're, we're able to make arrests. The suspect arrested about 30 minutes later in Crab Park. 43-year-old Dennis Prasad is charged with one count of aggravated assault and remains in custody awaiting a bail hearing set for Tuesday. All right, my guest is Rob Rothwell, more than 30 years with the Vancouver Police Department. Let's go to your phone calls here. Corey on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Corey, go ahead. Yeah, hey, yeah, I think it's a huge combination of a few things. I mean, I've seen, definitely seen deterioration in downtown um, in certain parts and some areas I just won't go to anymore. Uh, but, I mean, you need mental health services, but you need it when, like, at the source when they need it. You need to have boots on the ground and you need police walking the streets. They've cut back on a lot of those programs. Uh, you need to have Riverview reopened so you can deal with some of these people that are going to need permanent help. Some people will need help all the time. And the other thing I think is the parole board needs to be held accountable. They're not. They're never held accountable. There's no consequences. Look at the guy in Saskatchewan who had like 59 convictions and was recommended to re- that he would highly recommend that he would uh, reoffend, And they let him out. Like, where's yeah. the accountability? And so these things, I think, it's not one thing. It's going to be a multitude of things, right? So unless we can do that, I think you're going to see this problem continue. Okay, thank you for that call. We talked a lot last week on the show, Rob, about the Saskatchewan killings and the decision by the Parole Board of Canada uh, to release this, the suspect there. Um, that is under review. There is an investigation going on, an internal one. I don't know, maybe there needs to be a bigger investigation. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, that is a concern. Uh, it's being reviewed, which is important. Yeah. Uh, it's always a gamble. I mean, there's there's just no um, magic wand that you can wave and know for sure that uh, an individual will not reoffend. Uh, and I think that the parole board obviously does their best. Um, but again, I think they need to err on the side of protecting the public rather than the well-being of the incarcerated individual. Uh, and I really can't comment on that particular case because I uh, wasn't involved and haven't read the documents and so forth. But, you know, as a general statement, let's uh, err on protecting the public. Let's go to Deb on the line in Victoria. Hi, Deb. Go ahead. 
Hi, I, I just totally agree with Rob and his um, perspective on this. I, I believe that the society needs to be protected from these people and um, their violent nature, I think, is, is deep inside them. And I think that they should be incarcerated and kept separate from the public so that we can have our safety. Thank yeah. you very much. I love your show. Okay, thank you for the call. There is a major debate underway about repeat offenders, these prolific chronic offenders who in some cases are having literally hundreds, hundreds of contacts with the police and what should be done about that. Squeeze another call in here. Laura in Ladner. Hi, Laura. Go ahead. Oh, hi. I just wanted to uh, say the same thing. So how do we go about changing the justice system and the parole system and like what do we do like, we can it's talk lar- about this till next year yeah it's largely federal jurisdiction rob rothwell any thoughts on that well it's politically driven so yeah i would be in touch with your mp and uh you know we need to perhaps start uh some sort of a, a public campaign to have our politicians uh step up and uh uh, a lot of the uh, legislation is driven by the courts, of course, uh, through uh, determinations by judges. But um, there's definitely room for a law review to determine whether or not we've got the right laws in place or are being enforced, uh, and do they need to be modified. Rob, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. You bet. Okay. Bye-bye.